But we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And let me just say thank you to our team and our staff. Didn't they do a remarkable job singing, parking, getting people here on campus safely? Special thanks to Tickball Police Department, Officer Charlie, Captain Jake. Look, it's not Lieutenant Jake anymore. It's Captain Jake. Captain Jake. I just call him Cap. That's all I call him, Cap. Cap. So thank you to everybody. We're accustomed to a God who remains in one place, who sits enthroned in the heavens and rules and ordains. But could we dare today to envision a God who follows us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives? who tracks us down, calls, and restores us. And this is the kind of God described in the Bible. You have to go no further than the third chapter of the first book before you find God in the role of seeker. Is anybody, is anybody glad that he'll seek us out? Adam and Eve are hiding, partly to cover their bodies and partly to cover their sin. You see, they were the crescendo of God's creation. But they ate of the forbidden fruit and immediately became marred emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and physically. Sin had disfigured and displaced God's masterpiece. But does God wait for them to come to Him? No, ma'am, no, sir. The words ring in the garden, Where are you? And with that question, God began a quest for the heart of humanity that continues through today. And that's why this word, this Bible, is so powerful. Because it's a long narrative of how God sought to restore that which was damaged. And let's look at the start of the restoration process after the call. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but watch what it also says, you shall bruise his heel. I would rather be on the, the head bruising side than the heel bruising side. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. See that, Tiff? <laughs> and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them I want you to notice that he called them found them and covered them he called them found them and covered them so would you say they were valuable so I want to preach for a little while today on this topic the value of a missing masterpiece the value of a missing masterpiece just because we get lost every once in a while doesn't mean we lose value God I thank you for the opportunity to preach to these great people today God thank you for this crowd thank you for the opportunity to gather together but today we're here to learn about you about your heart for us and about how valuable we are to you I pray over every individual God let this word find good ground and produce in their life in Jesus name we pray somebody shout amen Give the Lord one more hand clap of praise. Amen. Give somebody a high five and you may be seated this morning. One of Leonardo da Vinci's most famous paintings was The Last Supper. Check that out. Painted on the wall of the Sistine Chapel, da Vinci was sure that his unique painting style would create a masterpiece that would last forever. However, it didn't quite work out that way. The painting began to crumble even during da Vinci's lifetime. And over the centuries, more and more damage occurred that nearly destroyed the painting he'd worked so diligently to create. For example, over the years, the building was used as a stable for horses, a prison, and even suffered flood damage. Also, during the French Revolution, French soldiers threw stones at the painting and climbed ladders to scratch out the eyes of the apostles. But perhaps the worst devastation occurred when an Allied bomb fell on the building in 1943 and caused the roof, I did say roof, in one wall to collapse. The painting survived but was exposed to elements for months before the space was rebuilt. And then in 1979, Italy commissioned their art restore, their number one, the best they had art restore, to bring the painting back to life. She spent the next 20 years removing the deposits of dirt and mold in the clumsy efforts of past restoration efforts. She did everything she can do. This famous art restorer explained that retouching the painting was extremely simple. She said, you just scratch until you reach the real Leonardo. The only difference was in knowing exactly when to stop. But even after 20 years of skillful efforts, the results were met with mixed reviews. Some praised her work, but others didn't. Many felt that she'd gone too far, took too many liberties, and many experts were highly disappointed with what was done. Some went so far as to say that the final product had little, if any, resemblance to the work that da Vinci had completed in 1497. As I read about all of this, and I was thinking about, man, this, this creator created a masterpiece. It was destroyed. And they brought somebody that they thought could fix it in. But she couldn't even put it back 
to how originally brilliant it was when Da Vinci created it. And as I thought about all of it, it occurred, it occurred to me that even the finest restorer couldn't bring this painting back to its full vibrancy. Why? Because only the creator could restore the masterpiece to its original beauty. Only Da Vinci could do what no one else could because it was Da, uh, da Vinci's vision that created the masterpiece. He was the creator. And it's no coincidence that in Genesis, the book of beginnings, it starts with these words, in the beginning, God created. With one decision, history began. Existence became measurable. Out of nothing came light. Out of light came day. Then came sky and earth. And on this earth, a mighty hand went to work. Canyons were carved. Oceans were dug. Mountains erupted out of flatlands. Stars were thrown into the sky. And a universe sparkled. Our sun became just one of millions. Our galaxy became just one of thousands. Planets invisibly tethered to suns roared through space at breakneck speeds. Stars blazed with heat that could melt our planet in seconds. And all of this was his art. It was his handiwork. And creation, all of creation echo the truth that there is no creator like God Almighty. There's none next to him, beside him, or even close to him. There's no other like him. He's self-sufficient, meaning he possesses every quality, ability, and supernatural command with never-ending measure within himself. God wants for nothing and lacks for nothing. He is complete within himself. Every attribute or mighty power is his endlessly. God did not need raw materials to make his universe because he, he creates by divine decree. And with a mere word, he made everything, both spiritual and physical. All of creation can be traced back to him. Did you hear what I said? All of creation can be traced back to him. The enemy wants you to think he's a creator. He's not a creator. The enemy is a part of the created. God also established from the very beginning his authority over the created world. He made the light, but he also named it. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And by naming the parts of his creation, God expressed sovereign rule over them. Even the concept of light, which is fundamental to our created world, only exists because God sustains it on a daily basis. I need somebody to get this. Because if we truly understood who our God is... We'd stop running from every demonic force trying to intimidate us. And we would stop living a defeated life because God is really on our side. And I've showed up today. I'm on a mission. I'm, I'm on a mission because I want to remind us, but I also want to remind our enemy before we go any further about who God is. He is the ancient of days. He is wisdom itself. He is all power, all might, all grace, and all authority. He is the great physician. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the lily of the valley. He is the ancient of days. He's the father of time. He's the father of time. He is the El Shaddai, all-sufficient, all-powerful, and almighty. He is the answer to every question, the healer to every disease, the way out of every trouble, and the bridge across every problem. He is the I am that I am. So whatever you're worried about, 
whatever you're upset about, whatever they're saying about you, remember who your God is. And remember, he is mighty, and with his might, he created all this beauty that we see in grandeur. The enemy doesn't really have that much power. That's what I want. I want Satan to realize that today. He doesn't have control of our lives because he didn't create our lives. So for six days, he created all this grandeur. And every day when God was finished, he patted himself on the back and said, it's good. Now, you know you God. When you can say, hey, I'm going to praise myself before there's anybody else to praise me. It's good. It's good. Before anybody else ever called him God, he knew he was God. Before anybody else ever told him how great he is, God said, I know who I am. The beginning and the end. The one who was and is and is to come. Yet we read at the end of day six that God breaks the pattern. Until this point, he had simply spoken and the created world sprang into being. But here God demonstrated his creative genius with his crowning achievement, his masterpiece. Let us make man in our image, visibly mirroring God's spiritual nature and according to his likeness. We are living and breathing expressions of God. And it's the creator who assigns value and purpose to the created. So stop letting the enemy tell you your worth. You are a masterpiece fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of almighty God. You're not valuable because of what you, what you can do. You're valuable because you exist. Not because of what you do or what you have done, but simply because of who you belong to. You belong to him. Chapter 1 of Genesis describes creation in broad strokes. But in chapter 2, I love it. The author decides to zoom in and focus on Adam. Genesis 2 and 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is key because when God breathed into Adam, he gave him more than oxygen. He gave him a soul. He made him an eternal being. And because of our soul, we wonder why we are here. And because of our soul, we wonder where we, where we are going. I, people that don't believe in God, think about where they're going to spend eternity. Because we have a soul that tells us when this life is over, we're going to spend eternity somewhere. And because of our soul, we wrestle with right and wrong. We value the lives of others. And we feel emotions when something makes us happy or sad. But more than any of that, our soul longs to unite us with God. But because we, we were created for eternity, to spend eternity with Him. So there's a longing that says, I need God in my life. It's the void in our life that knows it needs an anchor. Something greater to connect to. Because after the fall... Our soul is fragile. It feels the pain of death and knows the uncertainty of disease. But more than that, our soul constantly produces questions that cause us to reach for a relationship with the Creator. Think about the times that you've said, I feel so empty. Man, I just I feel empty. I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like I belong. I wish I had someone to talk to. Anybody ever said that? I just wish. I wish I had somebody that would understand my problems. Not the know-it-all. Look, you, you, usually you got two types of friends. You got the know-it-all. You can't share anything with them because they know everything about everything. Well, let me tell you how to fix Their life's a mess. But let me tell you how to fix your life. I can tell you, this is what you need to do. Take, take some apple cider vinegar and two ibuprofen, and you're going to be fine. 
<laughs> Fixes everything. Lay down and rest. 12 hours. And then you got the silent friend. You're on the phone with them and they don't say a thing. You, you spill your problems and tell them everything wrong in your life and they don't know they're in the phone just nodding. You're like, hello? Oh, I'm, I'm still here. I'm just listening. I'm just... And then we wonder, does anybody really, can anybody help me? Can anybody fix me? Does anybody understand who I am? Look, I, I talk to my spouse and they don't even understand. You know how many times my wife said, baby, you're weird. <laughs> what? No, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, babe. I look back at her and say, no, you're the weird one. It's not me, it's you. And look, I don't know if this is a compliment or not. You're a one of a kind. She was mad. She, she stays mad. <laughs> she was mad. I left her on that stage a while ago. I cut on out. <laughs> but listen, I, I, I got the microphone right now, and I'm going to be honest. I don't think there's many people that understand me. I am unique. Does anybody else feel that way but me? Like, I, I'm trying to find somebody that can understand how I was created. But what if, what if God wants that void in your life because he wants you to come back to your creator? What if you're searching for love in all the wrong places? What, what if, what if you're looking for hope in somebody to fix you and the creator saying, look, I put that soul and that void in you for you to come back to me and talk to me. I've got great news today. Our daily connection with our creator through prayer and the word can help us find fulfillment in our lives. That's why the enemy doesn't want you getting your Bible out. Because he knows when you get your Bible out, you're going to find purpose. That's why the enemy don't want you to pray. Watch this, Genesis 1 and 27. So God created man in his own image. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he placed them in the Garden of Eden. And for days and perhaps weeks afterward, God walked in the garden and spent time with his masterpiece. I want to go back to the garden. He was like literally walking with them and talking with them. It was perfect. It was ideal. And it would be great if we read Adam and Eve lived happily ever after. But they like us. Stories didn't play out that way. But we read something else. When we get to chapter 3, everything changes. In the third chapter, the third word of that chapter, we're introduced to a character called the serpent. He seemingly appears suddenly from out of nowhere. And the question is, what is the serpent? And who is the serpent? Well, fortunately like, fortunately, like when you went to school and the teacher said the answer is in the back of the book, we can find the answer to those questions in the back of the book. Revelation 12, 7 through 10. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels, fi angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Watch this. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The serpent is called the devil and Satan, which means adversary. The one who at one point was called the seal of perfection and was full of wisdom, the wisest of all God's creatures, who was in charge of the worship of God 
and the angelic host. Isaiah 14 and 12 calls him the morning star, day star. That's why, that's what he was before the fall. He was a star, but he wanted to be the director. And because it was worship directed toward God, he somehow felt left out because it talks about iniquity being found in him. So he was judged, cast from heaven, and destined for eternal punishment. A sentence that will be carried out as the last stages of God's prophetic plan are unveiled. And he wants to take as many people as he can with him. He's trying to steal as many of God's masterpieces as he can. Because at one point he was a masterpiece. That's why he showed up in the garden. We became God's masterpiece. We were created literally, literally now to worship God on earth. We do the same thing that Satan was created to do. We give God glory and honor and praise and the enemy doesn't like it. He's like, man, I used to be a masterpiece, but look, look at, look at this creation. Now, now they've got the breath of God in them. Now they're created in the image of God. Now go back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he said to the woman, the serpent, the serpent spoke. In other words, Satan spoke through the serpent to deceive. He has failed in heaven in usurping authority. So now he's cast to earth and he quickly tries to steal God's creation by immediately going to Adam and Eve. Now something I want you to pick up on to this point. God's word has been essential. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be, and there was. God's word was what he used to create. He spoke it into existence. Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, we believe the word of God framed the worlds. And just as the word of God was important in chapters 1 and 2, it's also important in chapter 3 in that his word is challenged. All that he said is now challenged by the serpent, Satan, the devil. He said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And watch what the woman, the woman said to the serpent, this is the first thing I need us to understand. We've got to stop having pleasant conversation with the enemy. He wants to engage us so that he can, he can trick us. And she starts this pleasant, friendly conversation. No, no. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first thing we notice is the serpent challenges the word of God. It's the first question mark in the Bible. Has God indeed said? Has he said? What Did God really say that? Did God really tell you that you couldn't eat of that tree? The second thing I want us to notice is that he challenges God's love. Would a good God, a God of love, keep something from you? What could? Listen, listen to how it's worded. Satan questioned Eve with this. Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? God didn't say that. What God said is this. You shall freely eat of all the trees of the garden except one. So notice what Satan does. He turns a positive invitation into a negative exclusion by changing the wording. Again, this implies that God must not love you because God is so strict and controlling. He doesn't want you to have any fun. Forget about all the blessings that you can have living for him. He doesn't want you to get high. 
He doesn't want you to, to have that pleasure. He's controlling. He's a controlling God. When God has said, no, you, you can live life, and you can live a good life and still serve me. You don't have to partake of that. God gives us all this goodness, but the enemy wants us to focus on the things we can't do. Well, we can't do this, and we can't do that. The third thing Satan does is he flat out denies God's word. You won't surely die. And he does the same thing to us. We're not ignorant, Paul said, of Satan's devices. In questioning God's word, in questioning God's love, and in denying God's word, we get to the core issue that Satan is trying to get at with Eve. You can't trust your creator. You can't trust God. Can you really rely upon God when in reality God had given them freedom and dominion, but that freedom and that dominion had to have a limitation because there could be no moral creature without the power of choice. We can't really say we love God unless we can say no to something in order to love God. You can't. You can't, you can't really say I'm a follower of God if he makes you follow him. They were still responsible to God, but they couldn't do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Hence the restraint. You can eat of any tree except that one tree. Genesis 3 and 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It sounds a lot like 1 John 2, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And watch what happens in Genesis 3 and 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They knew something was wrong. They had been naked up to this point and unashamed. But suddenly they were full of shame and guilt. So their nakedness was a mark of emotional death rather than life. The creation was marred emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and physically. But God doesn't wait for them to come to him. He starts walking in the same garden that he walked days and weeks before. And he started saying, where are you? Does that mean that God couldn't see them? I had somebody ask me that. God's omnipotent. He knew where they were. No, God, God could see them. However, it might mean that God didn't recognize the stuff they were hiding behind. God knew where they were. But maybe God couldn't recognize who they had become. And I know where you are, but don't recognize who you've become, who you are pretending to be or the mask you're hiding behind. And the call that should have brought them their greatest joy brought terror to them. Adam and Eve hid because they were afraid because they thought when God found them and saw what they had become that he wouldn't love them anymore. If he finds us in this condition, he's not going to love who we become. And we do the exact same thing. We, we hide behind careers and relationships and statuses and anything else that will cover what has really happened to us. We hide because we think he couldn't possibly love us if he sees us in this condition. How could he come looking for us and find us and love us when we look like this and have been through this? So we would rather hide than become vulnerable. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What are you afraid of, Adam? You've been naked the whole show. Adam, you never had clothes on. He's never had a suit of clothes on in his life. The issue was he didn't know he was naked because up to this point, they weren't self-conscious. They were selfless. 
They weren't thinking about themselves. They were only thinking about what they were created to do. Now, after the fall, there's this deep self-conscious awareness of who they are. This didn't stop with Adam and Eve, but it's been passed down to us for Adam. All of us die because of Adam's mistake. It's been passed down from generation to generation, and it's still a part of who we are. It's why we do what we do to make ourselves presentable. It's why we worry about what everybody thinks about us. That's why we cover up our failures and our mistakes and our issues the best that we can. We can be broken into a thousand pieces and put on our Sunday best and walk into the house of God and act like we got it all together. Because if they see me go down the altar and I'm vulnerable, I don't know what they're going to think of me. If I show them who I really am. We're worried about what we look like. We're worried about self-image instead of God-image. Who cares about a Savior that wants to restore me and redeem me? Let, me? let me show everybody, hey, I'm okay, guys. I got it together. I'm put together. My life's not broken. Adam and Eve had, had so much self-absorption that they are ashamed to be in God's presence. They were present but missing. You can be in the house of God and God calling you and still be missing. And look, we like the, we like the, we like the rah-rah. I know you're thinking, well, Pastor, what's rah I don't know, but we like it. We like the loudness. I've been raised around this. I got some of my family here today from Faith Apostolic Church, which I love. Church was so good to me. Helped shape my life. And I love loudness, and I do. I love the sound of music. I love worship. I love what our praise team did today, and it's great. But there's a problem when we love all the noise. But we won't go deep into worship with tears and praise where our heart is vulnerable before him. Most people that are hiding, their idea of a great praise service is noise. But let me ask you a question. How do we respond when he calls us to come out from our hiding? We can live and die and never be known. But I've shown up to remind someone God is calling. Adam, where are you? Where are you? Preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying he wants to worried you. He wants the crying you. He wants the confused and broken you. He wants the upset you. He wants the you that can't sleep at night. The you that's walking the floor. He wants the you that has sin in your life and you don't know what to do with it. The you that contemplates suicide. He wants that you. Adam, stop pretending. Adam, I'm not looking for who you pretend to be. I'm looking for you. Don't you know, Adam, that I love you? Not who you pretend to be. And when the dust cleared, God's masterpiece, which, which once had been a canvas filled with hope, peace, satisfaction, and life, now is filled with brokenness, emptiness, despair, and death. And the final product bore little, if any, resemblance to what God had created. God gave Adam and Eve the damage report we read in our text. But he also started the process of restoring the master, masterpiece. Musicians, you can come. He tells the serpents, Serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and you will eat dust all the days of your life, defeated and humiliated because of it. I love that. He literally defeated the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first messianic promise of the Bible. And when we read these words in Genesis 3 and 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Adam and Eve sow fig, fig leaves together to try to cover their mistakes and their issues, but it wouldn't work because fig leaves are green at first, but will eventually, will eventually, once cut off from the vine, lose their moisture, dry out and fall off, and they'll be naked again. So it's not a good solution. Adam and Eve, you can try to temporarily cover yourself, but it's not going to last very long. Adam and Eve, you can try to drown out your problems. But it's never really going to work. So the solution God comes up with here is animal skins. Now to get animal skins, you've got to do what? You've got to kill an animal. Blood has to be shed. Remember God said, when you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. So when they ate of the fruit, they didn't die immediately. You know why? Because an animal died in their stead. And the mistake that Adam and Eve made was put on an innocent, I believe it was a lamb. I can't prove that biblically, but I believe it was a lamb. Because we know that Jesus was the lamb shed from the foundation of the world. But that lamb or that animal had to die so that Adam and Eve could live. And God is showing us the restoration process for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And this process continued until one day the creator robed himself in flesh and became the creation. In an untouchable mystery he disguised himself as a carpenter and lived in a dusty village Determined to prove his love for his creation, he walked through his own world. His callous hands touched wounds, and his compassionate words touched hearts. But as beautiful as this act of incarnation was, it was not the zenith. Like a master painter, God reserved his masterpiece until the end. All the earlier acts of love had been leading to this one. The angels hushed, and the heavens paused to witness the finale. God unveils the canvas and the ultimate act of creative compassion is revealed. A savior on a cross. The creator being sacrificed for the creation. God convincing man once and for all that forgiveness still follows failure. He took our guilt so that we could have access to his innocence. I wonder, I wonder why Jesus Christ was on the cross. I wonder if he thought back to the garden I wonder if he went back to Adam and Eve in the garden I don't know we don't know but we do know however what he did he took the paint his blood the brush his body and the easel was Calvary and the canvas was our lives what can wash away my sins nothing but the blood of Jesus when he cried, it is finished. The veil was torn and the masterpiece exposed. And if you look around this building today, there are masterpieces displayed all over this building because we understand while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the person you are trying to hide. He died for every lost, misplaced masterpiece. He shed his blood for the person you're trying to convince them that you're not. Why do you think Jesus died on a tree? When they beat him bad enough, he should have died on the whipping post. But had he died on the whipping post, he wouldn't have broken the curse that was on the first man, Adam, because it was not about a whipping post. It was always about a tree. 
Genesis, Galatians 3 and 13. I'm sorry. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus had to die on a tree in order to restore the masterpiece. The tree of life is still the cross. If I can get to the tree... And I've stood at the tree with the forbidden fruit stretched toward me. I faced the decision to do right or wrong, to obey or disobey. And I chose sin. But everything I needed right before me, I chose the wrong. I failed. I marred the art even more. I felt the sting of guilt and condemnation. I've carried the burden of shame and secrecy. I've tried to cover my nakedness with my own works. I've hidden from God only to find that nothing is hidden from the eyes of the just judge. And only when I was confronted with my own failures, with my own sins, iniquities, and transgressions, was I able to acknowledge that I cannot cover my guilt. I cannot work my way out of my sin. I need a savior I don't need self-help books I need a savior I don't need another religious program I need a savior I don't need to numb my guilt and drugs or alcohol I need a savior the works of my hands is insufficient the excuses are hollow and worthless pointing fingers at others for my mistakes does nothing I have to say it I have to shout it I need a savior and I've heard the same call Adam and Eve heard Josh if you come out of hiding I can fix you Josh you don't have to be this unhappy Josh you don't have to be this miserable Josh I will cover you and restore you I will heal you and bless you I will raise you up I've already seen you and I love you come out come out Josh wherever you are and I'm not preaching it because I'm better than you preaching that because I'm one of you and I understand that no matter how lost I feel I'm still valuable to the one who's walking saying where are you today the enemy has come to seek to steal to kill and destroy he wants to take every masterpiece that he can with him Jesus Christ said I've come to seek and to save that which is was lost I've come to give life and to give it more abundantly and you thought that your value went down just because you was lost watch this in 1911 the famous Mona Lisa painting was stolen from the Louvre Museum in Paris and remaining missing for two years it remained missing for two years anybody know what the Mona Lisa is almost put a picture of that but brother Will said they all know what the Mona Lisa is so I like pictures, show and tell kind of guy. Interestingly, more people came to the museum. Watch this. The Mona Lisa was in the museum. It got stolen. More people came to the museum to see the blank space than had come to view the masterpiece itself in the previous 12 years. Also, before its death, the Mona Lisa was not widely known outside the world. Leonardo da Vinci painted the Leonardo da Vinci painted it in 1507, but it wasn't until the 1860s that critics said that it was a masterpiece. So it took a theft to show people how valuable the Mona Lisa was. 
if the enemy would have known what God was getting ready to do in your life and the value you was getting ready to have, he'd have never messed with you. It says this, that if they would have known what the cross was going to do, they would have never crucified him. Watch this. Luke 15. Luke 15 tells about these, these, the shepherd who will leave the 99 sheep to go find the one lost sheep. Because there is a such thing as missing masterpieces. It also talks about a coin. A woman had, had 10 coins. She lost one. She swept the house, turned the couches over to find that one coin because Jesus is showing us that there is a such thing as missing, missing masterpieces. What about the prodigal son? That father fed the fatted calf. He got that, that, that robe dry cleaned every day. Starch it, medium starch. He shined them Nike sandals up every day. Let's make sure they're ready for my boy comes home. Let's make sure. Look, is he coming home yet? Because he's lost now, but he's just a missing masterpiece. Because when he gets back, he's getting a new ring, a new signet. He's getting a new robe. He's getting some new shoes. And we throw in a party. Luke 15 and 7, and I'm done. Luke 15 and 7. I want them to see it on the screen. It's on its way. Pause, because it's, it's going to be worth it. I want you to see it. Because I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired of Satan determining our value. I'm tired of hearing suicide rates are going up. I'm tired of overdose rates going up. I'm tired of it. If we can show people that you might be lost, but you're still valuable. You may not be where you need to be, but you are still a missing masterpiece. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. Look, the castaway, the one, the one that people said they'll never make it out of that. Their life will never be anything. They'll never, they'll never amount to anything. They'll always be this way. If one sinner decides to climb out of the mire of their life and out of the pit of if one person can make up in their mind, I wasn't created to live this way. I was created to be in the presence of an almighty Savior. Look, this is where we're at. In the, in the modern day church, people come to the altar. The majority of the church leaves. We take people to the baptismal tank. People's leaving. But you know who doesn't leave? When a sinner comes to the altar, all of heaven looks down. And look at what it says. Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So we got 99 people that think they don't need a Savior. But if one person can realize that, look, I'm struggling right now. I'm in a battle. 
enemy's done everything he could to wreck my life. I don't know if I'll ever be anything. I don't know if I ever get out of this. I don't know if anybody ever understand me. I don't know if anybody would ever love me. Ma'am or so, sir, you are so wrong. Because what you got to understand is God is in the restoration business. And you hear me today, he has not marked you out of his plan and his purpose just because you've been ripped, torn, and broken by failure. He's going to restore to you the years that the enemy has taken from your life. Not only is God going to get back to you, but he's going to make the enemy give back to you everything with interest. 